Hi, Kim and Phil with you. And Phil, do you have any idea what reportedly is the fourth least visited country in the world? Hmm, let me see. Uh, does it really matter? I think you're going to tell me anyway, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Stay right there. Welcome to the War Nomads podcast, delivered by War Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Well, thank you for tuning in from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And Phil, as you are aware, but listeners may not be, reportedly the fourth least visited country in the world is the destination we're about to explore in this episode, Sao Tome and Principe. You say reportedly because you haven't counted the numbers yourself. Is that right? Well, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Look, it's, it's an archipelago of uh, islands in the Atlantic. So Tomei and Principe includes two main islands and several islets in the Gulf of Guinea. So that's off, you know, the western equatorial coast of Africa. The population is mainly foros, which is derived from the Portuguese word foro, which means free man. And they're descendants of immigrant Europeans and African slaves. Another group, the Angolares, descended from runaway Angolan slaves who were shipwrecked on Sao Tome in 1540. Look, oh, that's fascinating. a book, isn't it? That's just fascinating. <laughs> and can I just say, if you want to go off the beaten track, this is where you go. Oh, as we are about to find out, our first guest is Paul Bloomfield, a writer and photographer from England who focuses on adventure, travel, wildlife and conservation, culture and heritage. And we kick it off obviously acknowledging that not a lot of people have heard of this country. Well, you know, it's the second smallest country in Africa, and uh, I believe it's still the least visited. So, I mean, it's unsurprising most people don't know where it is or what it is or what its history is. You know, it's a, it's a pair of volcanic islands in the Gulf of Guinea that lie uh, a little way. The nearest um, part of the coast is Gabon. So uh, you can imagine these two tiny specks floating in the middle of the Gulf of Guinea, which obviously means they're quite tricky to get to. For Brits going there... Pretty much the only way to get there is via Lisbon on a flight that stops in Accra in Ghana. So it takes a fair while to get there. You pretty much have to stay overnight in Lisbon to get there. So I guess that's one of the reasons why not many people go. Mm. Something like that anyway. So it's Portuguese speaking then, I'll take it from the Lisbon connection. It is, yeah. Most of the people who are on the islands at the moment were brought over by the Portuguese to work the plantations. So you're right in saying that Portuguese is the lingua franca across the islands. But of course, these people came from different places, mostly other Portuguese colonies in Africa. So Angola and most of the people on both of the islands, particularly Principe, were uh, descended from people brought from Cap Verde. So on Santa Mé, most people speak a dialect called Foro which is, you wouldn't understand it if you spoke Portuguese because it's that mix of Cap Verdean and, and Portuguese and things that are developed on the island. And then on Principe, which is the smaller island, traditionally people spoke something called Lungia, which very few people speak now. And then on Santa Mé, there's another group of people who call themselves Angolares, who uh, they believe that they're descended from a group of enslaved people who escaped from a shipwreck and vanished off into a quilombo, you know, what these settlements formed by escaped slaves, they similar to what happened in South America. So they have their own language as well, Angolares, which is different again. I'm getting Suriname vibes here, Phil, Suriname vibes. I know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like the Maroons in Suriname, it's the same kind of thing. And in Brazil, it happened in numerous places. So the slaves would have a rebellion or just run off and they'd form these communities, Columbus. So that's, and Angolares is spoken by this community 
who basically, if you see a fisherman around Santa Mea, it's, it's going to be Angularis. West Africa, it's kind of a bit tricky, really, isn't it? In terms of reaching it or in terms yeah, well, of politics? Yeah, in terms of or, reaching, yeah, all of the above. One of the problems we always have as people talking or writing about travel is that uh, places get lumped together. So when you talk about West Africa, you'd say you don't want to mess around in the dodgy bits of Nigeria. But Sierra Leone, for example, is having a bit of a renaissance and now is becoming very popular, certainly amongst Brits, because it was a former British colony. But, um, you know, it's safe. We don't have a civil war. It's got beautiful beaches. So that's very popular. So you sort of have to balance those things. And similarly, in Central Africa, of course, you you would need to be very careful going somewhere like DRC, whereas Congo is generally much safer. The thing about Santa Maria is, of course, it, it didn't have that sort of violent uh, birth um, and after independence in 75. You know, it's had its political problems, but actually it's been largely pretty peaceful. You know, it's a very safe, friendly kind of place, particularly Principe, because even though it's a country, Santa Maria and Principe, they have a great deal of autonomy and Principe's government acts very independently of Santa Mae, certainly in things like trade and industry and the environmental issues and tourism. It's quite progressive. When you say progressive, so easygoing kind of people? Oh, very much so, very much. So if you think so, of the two islands, Santa Mae is substantially bigger, but still pretty small. You know, you can drive from the north end, which is where the airport and the capital Santa Mae city is, to the south in a couple of hours, something like that. And the southern half of both islands is covered by a national park called Oboe National Park, which is just incredibly green. Both islands are about, uh, I think, 30 million years old and they're volcanic. So you have these huge, uh, quite phallic volcanic outcrops called phonoliths uh, that sort of loom up from the jungle and the uh, the mist tends to gather around. They're very humid country, so there's a lot of cloud. Even in the dry season, it, it's very cloudy. You get amazing blue skies after rain and then clouds. And the, the cloud swirls around the top of these phonoliths. They call it Leite de... I'm going to pronounce it. It's something like Leite de Fodor. It's basically um, flying fish milk. It's hugely biodiverse. You know, the, the, the phrase is it's the Galapagos of Africa because it's got more endemic bird species and plant species for its size than the Galapagos. You know, you know you're not going to run across a giant tortoise or a blue-footed booby or a marine iguana. You, there are lots of birds flitting around the jungle you may or may not see. But it is, it, you know, it's very wild. Well, there is a great picture in your article that you wrote for us of those phonolithic rocks that you spoke about and they very much are yeah phallic looking it's hard to get away from it i don't think you need to be a teenager <laughs> to see that comparison <laughs> nature aside you you went there at, at a time when they have this vibrant festival so for a place that people pretty much don't know anything about how is it on the festival calendar well i mean actually both islands have a amazing culture because they have the, the sort of portuguese christian culture but with those kind of African rhythms, particularly Cape Verdean music, you, you probably know Cape Verde has a, a very uh, unique musical culture. And so on Santa May, they have a festival called the uh, Chiloli, which is, again, related to an old Christian story. But on Principe, there's only, I think, about 6,000 people living on Principe, and pretty much everybody's involved in this festival. So you can imagine... The streets of the main, what they call the city, San Antonio, which is absolutely tiny. It's about 
you know, one, one church, a couple of shops and a couple of bars. That's about it. So once a year, every day on the feast of uh, San Lorenzo on the 10th of August, everybody gets together. And basically it's, it's a reenactment of a medieval play, a French chanson about the character they call Carlo Magna, who is Charlemagne and, uh, a Saracen Admiral Balan, who, according to the story, stole a Christian relic and Charlemagne has to go and fetch it back. Um, obviously, this was during the time when the Moors ruled Andalusia. And uh, one of the Christian knights falls in love with the Moorish Admiral's daughter, Floripes, which is why the festival is called Alto de Floripes. And basically, the whole thing is a bunch of guys dressed up in red and yellow clothes, banging drums and whistling, so they're, they're the Moors. And then more sedate guys dressed in blue and white and green who are the Christians. And there's, there's a lot of marching and banging drums and shouting at the others saying, give us back our daughter, give us back our relic. And then they have a few fights. And this goes on for about 14 hours. But it's just incredible. Oh, that is sensational. So the article is all about why you should travel there. If you could sum it up, why would a nomad want to visit? Well, I think the first thing is the culture. As I say, the festival is just one part of it. But the people, particularly on Principe, are friendly and peaceful. And considering 45 years ago, these people, they weren't slaves before independence. They were what were called services. So they were contract workers, but they were pretty much treated as slaves. And they're living in these plantations which are, you know, ready-made communities, but they're so lively and friendly and full of joy. Thanks, Paul. So now we know where it yep. is, Phil, mm-hmm. a little of its history yep. and culture. Let's take a deep dive. Ute Yanka worked as a magazine editor and TV and digital producer before she ran away to become a travel writer. Lots of people listening will either be inspired by that or get exactly where she's coming from. Yep. And she agrees this country is off the beaten track, but it has so much to offer. Look, these two tiny islands, they're kind of the definition of remote. They are So they float off the coast of West Africa. They're 200 kilometres from Gabon, so no one goes to Gabon anyway. And then the two islands are 200 kilometres apart. So first of all, you have to know where they are. Secondly, you have to know what you're going to do when you get there, which admittedly is not an awful lot, but that can be pleasurable. And I mean, what I find fascinating is you think of somewhere like French Polynesia, which again is remote islands, middle of nowhere, not a whole lot to do, but they are super touristy and super visited. And why is that? That's because they were colonised by the French. And so you have painters going out there like Gauguin, you've got French administrators and they're all singing the praises and it builds up to a thing. Poor little Satomi and Principe has been sitting there. It was, you know, the Portuguese owned it, didn't do a whole lot, and then they got independence and no one's done anything. And it's only now that there's starting to be some investment in tourism. So hopefully we're going to see some people go and discover that these places are absolutely beautiful. You say there's not a lot to do there. Is that part of the attraction of it? Totally. So I spent most of my time on Principe, which is the smaller island. So, and it's hilarious. You t- you go to Satome and you go, okay, this is a very easy going, relaxed place where not a lot happens. And then you go to Principe and this is a place where literally in the main town, Santo Antonio, they dry their washing on the streets because there is so little traffic that you can actually do that. <laughs> and you talk to the lo- locals and you go, so, you know, I've just come from Satome. And they go, oh, Satome, way too busy there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the, the thing about Principe that why it's worth visiting, first of all, it has beautiful beaches, which is for me always justifies the trip, but it's also a UNESCO listed biosphere. So it's covered in this magnificent old growth forest. So you can do great hikes to waterfalls. You can lie on the beach. You can go snorkeling. It's a really chilled, laid back thing. You can go and they do these great bio walks where you discover all these really interesting plants and it's just chill time. we all take holidays where the whole aim is to disconnect, right? And this is the the amazing place to do it. And one of one of the other things about it is because it is a place that is so largely without tourism, things happen differently there. So I was staying in a resort in Principe and they said to me, you know, they said to me, well, do you want to have lunch in town one day? And I was like, okay, we drove through town. I didn't see anywhere to have lunch. And they went, no, no, we have four restaurants. And I went, okay, great. Let's go to one of the four restaurants. And the restaurant was literally indistinguishable from someone's house because in fact it was someone's house. And so you just rock up, you sit on someone's balcony. Rosina was, was in charge of the restaurant that we went to. And there's no menu either. You know, she just brings you whatever she's cooking. <laughs> and that's not an experience you can get anywhere. So, so that's part of the joy of it. You say they're encouraging tourism. Hopefully they're going to keep that vibe. Yeah, I think they're fine because basically all the tourism is being led by one person. So, <laughs> so I mean, literally, Principe has one investor and he's a guy called Mark Shuttleworth and his nickname, I love this, he's called the Afronaut because he was the first African in space. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's a South African venture capitalist, essentially. And the story that the locals love to tell you is that when he was up in space and he looked down on the globe and he saw these two tiny islands and he went, I've never heard of those places. I have no idea where they are. I want to go there. Now, look, I don't know. Gut instinct tells me they're probably too small to be seen from space, but let's work with the story. So Shuttleworth, good to his word, comes down and he's opened three properties there. Um, Best guesses, a lot of people have thrown guesses around. He's invested somewhere between, say, 95 and 135 million in Principe. One local told me that eight out of 10 jobs can be traced on the island can be traced back to this one guy because it's it's building the resorts, it's working in the resorts, it's the farmers who are growing food for the resorts. He's set up things like, and he's got an eye on sustainability. So at one of the resorts, they've got a big rubbish recycling centre so that they can, they can rescue from the rubbish whatever can be used to make jewellery or trinkets or whatever. So it is done with a, a whole-of-life approach. So... He, his work, his aim is not to create a huge thriving tourism industry that has resorts on every corner. He just wants to show the world that this place exists and to have the locals have the opportunity to have jobs. If you're staying in any of the resorts on these islands, they're not cheap because they're so far away and so capital intensive. But he's got sort of an entry level option. He's got a gorgeous tented kind of camp on the beach, Praya Sundi, and then he's got the plantation house, Rosa Sundi. And that's also really interesting because the way these things worked was there was a plantation house surrounded by a quadrangle and then you'd have the walkers dormitories around the side and all of that is preserved so you can go and see how these plantations once would have worked. 
So who's it attracting then? If you've got the sort of high-end accommodation options and you've got the city that's four streets with three of them full of washing and then you've got your entry-level accommodation, it's hard to get to. Not a lot of people know about it. Who is going there? Um, you've got you've got a handful of very intrepid backpackers, but on the whole you're getting, on the certainly in terms of the people I met on the plane and in the resorts, there were a lot of Portuguese coming for a long weekend, which, you know, as the former colonial power, they've got the the awareness of the place. And there's also apparently quite good connections from Dubai. So a lot of expats who want to do something different are headed there. There's another great little story on Principe that they they have the world's oldest cacao trees and they have a chocolate maker there and this is funnily enough when I was there and I posted on Instagram a chef friend of mine uh, replied to my post and said oh my god have you met Claudio Carallo and I'm like who and it turns out he is one of the most revered chocolate makers in the world because he went to Principe and found so apparently all of the cacao trees around the world that we use to make chocolates are actually hybrids and Principe is the last place on earth that has a population of pure cacao trees because the Portuguese, when they had it, decided to, to try transplanting some of the trees from Brazil to Principe to see how it worked. And they worked, but they lost interest. And then everyone forgot them and the jungle went wild, but they were still in the jungle. And this guy who was in chocolate production sort of went on a, a sort of Raiders of the Lost Uh, quest except it was you know raiders of the lost cacao trees and he actually found them and has set up a plantation and so you can go visit him you know he's he's quite happy to meet meet visitors and chat to them and it was hilarious because the house he lives in which is another old plantation house and it's just mouldering so elegantly you know there's no glass left in the windows but it looks fantastic and he said to me he said yeah the locals the local people were out here the other day they think I should be a tourist attraction but they want me to paint the house I'm not painting the house (laughs) that's fascinating I I know I know so beautiful and the story Uto wrote for the Australian publication Traveller also includes a list of other destinations you may not have heard of before, stuff like uh, Kyrgyzstan, which we're covering in an upcoming episode, I'm glad to say. Yep, we're doing the stands. All right, time to pause and get your questions about Sao Tome and Principe. Now, these are the most searched questions about this destination, apart from where is it, <laughs> which we're discovering, uh, hence the episode. But, Phil, is it expensive? Look, according to our wonderful partners, Lonely Planet, a double room in a mid-range hotel will cost between 60 and 85 euros. That's about 75 US dollars. Lunch and dinner in a local restaurant, which sounds like a fantastic experience, about 20 euros, which is, you know, 22 US dollars. Note also, at the time of recording this in February 2020, there were no ATMs and certainly only high-end hotels and only some of them accepted credit cards. Two of them offer a, a limited cash-out uh, facility there as well, so take some cash in euros uh, to make sure you can uh, get some of that uh, lovely lunch when you're travelling. <laughs> Good tip. Look, travellers also want to know what Sotome and Principe are famous for. Well, as we heard with Uta, the best chocolate in the world is there. Isn't that enough? <laughs> End of story. Here's a fun fact. 
45 miles, that's about 75k south of Sao Tome City at Rolas Island, you can cross the equator. You can straddle the equator there. There's a marker there and a map of the world to help you put all of where you are into context. Yeah, very cool. So do you need vaccinations though? Yeah, you do. Look, you've got to have the yellow fever vaccination. Not that it's endemic there, but if you're travelling to another country and you're in a yellow fever zone, you need to have had yep. the vaccination. And so you've got to carry the uh, yellow fever vaccination book with you as well because you might not even be allowed on the plane if you haven't got that. And AFA, who we're about to chat with, suggests malaria tablets are a good idea. Look, no cases have been reported of visitors getting malaria, but she says some of the locals do have it. Well, cheers for that. All good information. Let's get into the chat with Aoife and find out some more practical points for travelling to this destination from the safety article that she's written for us. But given Sao Tome and Prince Pei's remoteness, Phil, and the degree of difficulty getting there, we've got to find out how she found herself on these islands. Um, well, I found myself there because I was really interested in a sort of sustainable tourism project that's going on on predominantly on Principe at the moment. Well, at the moment, it's a kind of a very long-term project, which is um, run by a company called Here Be Dragons, which is, um, it was kind of established by a kind of a tech, uh, I don't know, billionaire for want of a better word. We've been introduced to Mark and what he's been, he's probably the sole investor. Yeah, pretty much. I think he's spent tens of millions from what I can what I'm told. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was I was there writing a piece for another publication. Um, but it was somewhere that I've always, you know, for quite a while since I sort of learned about uh, what was going on there. Um, I was really interested to kind of go and see it for myself. So being interested in sustainable travel then, you know, we're introducing this place to to the world and people are starting to enjoy it. You don't want it to be overrun, though, do we? No, 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 we don't. Um, I mean, I think, well, from what I what I saw there, I think, you know, obviously the the particularly the government um, in Principe are quite mindful of how somewhere like that needs to be developed. I think, you know, also with the kind of input from HBD, you know, that I think they're trying to take a more kind of uh, sensitive approach to what they have, and also. Uh, you know, pretty much all of the island is a UNESCO biosphere reserve, um, Principe, the second island. So, you know, that obviously has a big, you know, plays a big factor in how it can be developed or how much it can be developed. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a, a third world country. So the infrastructure doesn't really exist anyway. Um, at the moment, you know, they've got one plane which goes between the two islands and when that's not working, nobody goes anywhere. So <laughs> I think people are very sort of cognizant of the fact that, you know, it is very precious what they have. It remains to be seen what will happen. Well, fingers crossed. Now, we just covered a few mm. points uh, in the podcast that people uh, want to know about Sao Tome and Principe, and you've written an article for us on just how safe it is. Yeah, well, my, my experience is that's very positive. I, I would say it's very safe. I mean, obviously, you have to you know, use your common sense and, you know, presumably if you're going somewhere like Santame, you've travelled fairly extensively or you're kind of aware of where you're going. So it's, you know, uh, a third world country and everything that goes along with that still kind of holds. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a safe country. There's very little crime. Um, you know, I suppose 
the natural world is the biggest kind of danger to anyone. And that's, you know, if you kind of keep your wits about you, that's not such a big problem. There are many types of things you have to consider in regards to safety. And we all sort of, our minds go straight to, you know, crime. Am I going to be safe on the street? But you've also written some tips for us on jungle safety. Yeah, so that was kind of interesting. I suppose um, until you actually get there, you don't really quite appreciate how sort of unbelievably fertile and lush the country is. And I mean, pretty much, I don't know the exact statistics, but something like 95 or 98% is covered in jungle, So, um, which is actually fairly impenetrable. So yes, I suppose it's those aspects like driving um, is fairly challenging if there's not that many paved roads once you get off the main drag from the Air Force. So does jungle safety kind of morph into animal safety or are, are there no real nasties there? There aren't actually really any nasty, scary animals. There's two snakes, but they're not venomous from what I understand. So, um, so yeah, it's, re- it's really about keeping yourself safe and not going off, uh, off the tracks. Uh, getting lost, basically. That's the main thing I think people need to worry about there. All right. Well, not quite like Australia then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 no scary spiders. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually heard a story about um, a boy who had gotten lost in the jungle in Principe uh, a little, he was like nine years old, and somehow managed to have the kind of wherewithal to go and find one of the rivers and follow the river down to the one of the beaches which are still very remote and he was uh picked up six months later uh <gasps> still alive and well oh come on <laughs> That's he, a... yeah he's he survived on you know it's incredibly fertile so there's bananas and plants every you know fruit everywhere you look so he survived in the jungle for six months and now he's a a guide at one of the hotels on Principe. That is the best story. And you know what? That would make a fabulous movie. One of those ones where there's no dialogue. You just follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's in his 20s, sort of late, I think early 20s now. Or late. He, he was definitely working at one of the hotels at one stage as one of the guides because, you know, they employ locals at all the hotels that HBD operates. So they try and train them up. So he obviously doesn't need any training by the sounds of it, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up with one thing we haven't addressed yet in the podcast, and that is, do we need visas for Sao Tome and Principe? Um, you need a visa, but it's issued on arrival if you're staying for less than 15 days. So if you're staying longer, you need to apply to the uh, to the relevant kind of consulate closest to your country. Well, we've established, Aoife, that's an incredible, incredibly difficult destination to get to. Is it worth it? Yeah, I would absolutely say it's worth it. And, it, it, you know, it's, uh, well, I guess it depends where you're coming from. But, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of an unforgettable, precious island. And you sort of realise how few places there are like that that really exist in the world um, at this stage. And, I mean, obviously, it's, it's um, you know, point in its sort of evolution in terms of visitors where it could go either way. But at the moment, it's, you know, it is, it is the kind of real deal, kind of um, unspoiled sort of tropical idol that you kind of hope it's going to be. I am in love with this country, Phil. Wow. In love. And something else I love is yeah. Bacardi rum. <laughs> 
No, I can't drink it. It's, you know, when you're young and you get really badly drunk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Bacardi for me. You I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I was thrilled to discover the TV commercial for it. It was filmed in Prince Bay. So to wrap up this episode, freelance travel writer Richard Meller fills us in on the amazing beaches, including Banana Beach, where the Bacardi ad was filmed. Saturday, I can't say too much regarding the beaches because I only saw a couple and I believe there are a lot, lot more than I saw. From what I hear, from what I gather, the beaches there are, some of them are even black sands. Both, both islands are volcanic. So some beaches are black sand, some are your classic postcard white sand, and some are yellow or some shade in between. Um, what, what they are is busier and just less virgin in feel. When you go to Principe, I'm, I'm reliably told by Wikipedia, I looked this up because I was curious, that there are 17 beaches on Principe. I'm not 100% sure I trust that, but that sounds about right. I would say I saw 10 of them, perhaps, and they were all, all but one were completely empty of people. The one that wasn't had three or four locals on it. And they just had the feel of, of a castaway island, essentially. Palm trees at the back, green water sand with no footprints on it unless you happen to walk on them, um, coconuts rolling down the beach from the palm trees, that kind of thing. That they, were, they were a vision of perfection as compared to, say, what you might see in a brochure of a Caribbean or a Maldives. I think the ones I saw were mostly a, a sort of yellower, if you like, a butterscotch-coloured sand rather than totally white like that. Oh, I like that description, butterscotch sand. I don't think I've ever read that or heard that. Honestly, writing about beaches is the hardest thing as a travel writer because it's sort of all been said before and really what can you say? There's sand, there's clear sea. Everything you can say has been said before. It's so difficult to come up with something that you don't immediately read back to yourself and shout out, cliche. How do you describe that? Well, the first thing I do is panic. Because how on earth do I describe this in a way that I haven't described the last 10 beaches? If, if there's anything unique about it, say that, I don't know, it could be the, the gradient of the beach is slightly higher than usual, flatter than usual, or perhaps the, the, the sheer size of the beach is bigger than normal. We have some here in the UK where, especially when the tide's out, the actual area of the beach is vast. I would look for a difference like that, some way that, if I could describe it to someone else, it would make sense to imagine. And failing that, if it's just your archetypal perfect beach, then almost I think the trick is to go into the cliche. Personally, if you try and describe it in a, in a, in a beautiful way, you just end up sounding like 10 other people before you. Okay, so taking your uh, British hat off and enjoying those, those beaches in Principe, what would you rate them out of 10? The first one I went to was Banana Beach, Pride Banana, the one of, of the Bacardi advert fame. I knew that, and I also had been told by this this eminent British travel writer, Stanley Stewart, that it, he told me, and then actually I, I'd later read in his article that he'd written the same thing, that it was the best speech he'd ever seen. When summer is built up to that degree, it almost can't fail but underwhelm. It was absolutely beautiful, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite as long and quite as curvy as I'd imagined in my photoshopped head. A bit like a blind date. Well, yeah, basically what struck me about it, what struck me about all of the rest that I saw 
with just how empty they were. I mean, there were no there were no locals on. Prince Bay only has the last stats I heard it had set a population of about seven thousand. I think that may have gone up slightly. People move there to work in tourism, but certainly under ten thousand. Most of them are working. They've just got no time to go to the beach. And also, a lot of the beaches are either not accessible by road at all or accessible by roads that are really rutted and hard. So they're a tough job to get to. You, you maybe need a boat. So quite a lot of the ones I saw were either empty or had the occasional fishermen. I've been to a fair few beaches in my time, but when they've been that good, they've never been that empty. It's just remarkable. And it, it was just the case again and again. We went to one after Pry Banana called Pry Boy, B-O-I, which was just sublime in every way, right down to the water being really warm. And then after an hour or so, I was travelling around by boat. The skipper of our boat suggested we go to another one almost just because we could. So then we went around the bay and went to another one. And guess what? It was just as good. What type of beach lover does it appeal to? I thought that was a great question, actually, because it, there's a kind of beach lover here in the UK who likes, and, and I'm sure there's the same kind in Australia, everywhere else, who likes facilities. They like there to be a place that has showers, gives them a meal when they want, has towels. They like there to be lounges on the beach, that kind of thing. There is absolutely none of that in Principe. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Certainly wasn't at any of the beaches I went to. Praia Banana, for instance, which is the most famous, unless things have drastically changed since I went, there is nothing on that beach. No shops, no restaurants, no buildings of any kind. Um, Just the beach. I think if you're someone who likes a lot of facilities, then it's not going to be for you. Equally, if you're someone who likes, well, <laughs> if you're someone who doesn't like people, then it's very much for you. And if you're someone who, who just wants to have a perfect beach, pretty much to themselves, most likely all day, to have warm waters, to have soft sand, all of that, it's, it's sheer heaven. It's just, I think above all, it's that castaway feel, that sense of somewhere that most people have not discovered. <laughs> Now I need a Bacardi. And that <laughs> is Salto Bay. Sorry. <laughs> and Principe. Links in show notes to all our guests. Next week, Sylvia Longmire, a service-disabled veteran, author, consultant, entrepreneur and world traveller. Bye. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.